as a congregation of people, we have a great deal to praise God for today as we begin our 10th year of ministry. You will notice an extra little logo that we have designed to celebrate this entire year as we enter into it, a year that begins a new decade of ministry, but a year that in one sense ends a decade of ministry for us. As we look back over these nine years, I suppose all of us could come up with some examples of how we have seen God's faithfulness demonstrated in our small churches, in our flocks, or for us as a total congregation. But what a fitting theme for us this morning on this ninth anniversary to praise God for His faithfulness. A traditional bit of wisdom says that every bride should receive something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Hopefully that's not her groom. It seems that marriage begins well if there is a recognition that the value of things old is as important as the value of things new. We've been talking about new things, new methods, new concepts of ministry as we enter into a new decade. But at the same time, we need to remember the value of old truths. For example, the truth of repentance, the mindset of repentance. We never graduate or mature out of the need to maintain an attitude that says, I am open to the voice of God, and I will change my mind and mend my ways as He directs me. That is the attitude of repentance. And it's a mindset that is appropriate for us believers to keep throughout our lives in this world. Beware the ear that has grown deaf to God's reproof or the heart that has become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then there's the old truth of dependence, an attitude of dependence upon God. We never grow up enough or become experienced enough to strike out on our own apart from God. We need Him. And it is that trust, that faith, that reliance that makes his involvement in our lives a daily reality. These are two old truths that we must hang on to as we enter into this tenth year of ministry and into a new decade. We want to be a people of repentance. We want to be a people of dependence. And we come today to another old truth that I believe is important for us to lay hold of, And that is the old truth of obedience. Now when we speak of obedience, we need to remember that like repentance and dependence or faith, obedience relates to the saving experience. In fact, we are saved by obedience. Did you know that? That is not the same thing as saying that we are saved by works, because that would be false. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace and grace alone. But faith is equated with obedience. Turn with me to John chapter 3 and notice the very last verse 
of this familiar chapter. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice that John equates believing and obeying in this verse. In other words, the obedience he's talking about is the obedience of faith. When we are told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, we need to understand that that is not merely an invitation. It is a commandment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we believe on Christ, we are obeying God. And that's why I say it is obedience that saves. Turn also with me, please, to the book of Romans, the first chapter. This great book of theology that describes to us the grace of God and the salvation that is by grace carries in it a similar theme. Notice that the Apostle Paul, as he speaks about his own ministry, in verse 5 of chapter 1 says, Through whom, through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. And so the apostle speaks about the obedience of faith. And then if you'll turn to the end of the book, he seems to sandwich the content of the book of Romans between these two phrases. As we see in Romans chapter 16. Verse 25, as he gives the benediction, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. So once again we see that salvation is by obedience because it is the obedience of believing that brings salvation. Now we could go to Peter if we had time and we would see that Peter says exactly the same thing in his first epistle. The obedience of faith. But once having become a child of God by obedience in believing Christ... We do not leave aside obedience. We are not kept saved by our works any more than we are saved by our works. But we are saved that we might obey. God's plan for you and me is to know a life of obedience in this world. Turn back to the Gospel of John and notice the words of the Lord Jesus in the 14th chapter as we come now to the text for today. In this 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, look at the 15th verse where it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or it may be understood as a command, keep my commandments. He says in verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, 
He it is who loves me. And then in verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And in verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. The Lord Jesus says that if we love him, we are to keep his commandments. That is, we are to obey. I notice in the first place here that obedience is a matter of keeping Christ's commands, his commandments. We need to understand something about the word commandments. Jesus uses it again here in the verse, the 14th chapter in verse 31 in reference to a commandment he had received. He says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. And so he says, The Father has given me commandment. Now in this context, the word commandment refers to a direction. He says, The Father has given me direction as to what I am to do, and I do that. As we use the word commandment elsewhere, though, in relation to us, it has a more descriptive meaning, a more prescribed meaning. The word commandment, as Jesus is using it in the verses we read earlier, means a precept or a rule. And so Jesus says, if you love me, you will observe, you will follow my rule or rules. You will keep my precepts. You will observe my commandments. Now as we see this in John chapter 14, it's important for us to look at the context and to find out specifically what commandments Jesus had in mind when he said this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus, what commandments do you mean? Well, let's go back to chapter 13. You'll recall that beginning with chapter 13, we have a long discourse in the Gospel of John. It is all the same occasion up through chapter 17. It is the night before his crucifixion. Some of it was spoken and acted out in the upper room at the Last Supper. Other parts of it may have been spoken as they walked together toward the Garden of Gethsemane for that time of, of agony in prayer. But it was all on that night that Jesus spoke and acted out what is written in John chapters 13 through 17. And so just a few minutes before this, maybe, well, let's say an hour before Jesus made this comment in verse 15. In chapter 13, he had said this in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so certainly as Jesus made his comment in chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He had this in mind. The commandment to love one another. When Jesus said that, he said it in a present tense, in the sense, You will keep on loving one another. This will be a habit of life. This will be a practice for you to love one another. Now when he says this is a new commandment, what does he mean by that? For if you recall, Jesus himself had said that the summation of the law 
is that we love God with everything that's in us and that we love our fellow man as ourselves. So already he has said that love is his commandment. In fact, love is the bottom line of the law. So what does he mean here by a new commandment I give to you that you love one another? The word new in the original language in which John wrote does not mean new in the sense of time. But it means new in the sense of quality. So as Jesus says this, there's something about this commandment in its quality that is new. And of course, you don't have to look very hard to figure out what that is. He says, love one another even as I have loved you. And so there is the newness of this commandment. The love that we are to express to one another is the same quality of love, says Jesus, that I have loved you with. It is a new freshness, a new pattern that you are to follow. It is the kind of love, says our Lord, that is filled with self-sacrifice. That's the essence of it. This kind of love is a love that sacrifices for others. That's one commandment. Obedience is a matter of keeping Christ's commands. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And here's one of them, love one another. And then we see another one. Chapter 14, just a few minutes later, in this discussion, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's a commend. Isn't it, doesn't it seem strange to you that Jesus would speak to his disciples and say to them who had already believed on him, Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying again in the present tense, keep on believing in God, keep on believing in me. Make this a practice of your life. Every step that you take, let it be a step of believing in God, believing in me. Now why would he say this on this particular night? Well, it's because their, their minds are filled with trouble. Notice he says, your hearts are troubled. He had done a spiritual exam on them, and their spiritual heart is in trouble. It is agitated. By what? Well, perhaps by the shame that they felt of their own selfishness and pride. Remember, that's why Jesus washed their feet, to give them the example of humble service that none of them was willing initially to perform. That had shamed them. Their hearts were troubled by that. And then Jesus had said to them that he was going away. There was sadness in their hearts. And undoubtedly there was perplexity too. As he told them that one of them would betray him. That another one of them would deny him. And that all of them would be ensnared because of him. What did he mean by that? And then, perhaps there was uncertainty that was eating away on this crucial night. 
for their understanding of the work of the Christ was the same that their religious leaders had taught them. And that was the Christ was coming to rule. He was coming to establish a kingdom. And now Jesus speaks in terms of going away and hence even at dying. Could, could it be that they were wrong? Is he really the Christ? And so their hearts were troubled. And because of what was about to take place, Jesus said to them, Keep on believing in me. And then there is another command that is at least implied in chapter 14. In verse 13, Jesus says to them, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so there is a command implied, at least here, that we are to pray. He tells his disciples, Pray in my name. Notice the close connection here with verse 12 where Jesus has just said to them, And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father, that is, the one who believes in him, would do greater work. Not greater work in degree. No one can ever do greater work than Jesus was about to do at the cross, where he would lay down his life for redemption of lost people. But greater works, perhaps in the sense of extent, the disciples would carry the word of God where Jesus never went. His ministry was primarily to the house of the Jews. And he lived his life in that region, with the exception of the time that he went down to Egypt when he was very young with his mother and father. He was there in Palestine. But he says, now greater works than the ones that I've done shall those do who believe in me. And then he immediately goes on to say, and whatever you ask in my name. Do you understand that? Jesus is connecting the greater works with prayer. Pray in my name, says Jesus, that you may accomplish the works that God has given you to do. Greater works. Notice he says, pray in my name. That is, pray in keeping with what I would ask. Pray in the interests of God's kingdom. Form your requests so that they are in harmony with what I have said to you about myself. So that as you pray, you can pray as though you were me asking the Father. You are coming in my authority, with my burdens to Him. You are phrasing my requests to the Father. Pray in my name, He says. They had never prayed that way before, of course. But now he invokes upon them this commandment. Pray, and pray in my name, that you may accomplish the greater works that God will give you to do. So now when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, you understand something more of what he was saying. You will love one another and keep on loving one another. You will believe in me and keep on believing in me, even when the questions rise, even when the doubts multiply, keep on believing. And pray, and pray in my name. Obedience 
really is a matter of keeping the commandments of Jesus Christ, like those that we look at in the very context of this verse. But then obedience is also the primary proof of love. Do you love Jesus? We used to sing the gospel song in our glee club that said, Is there anybody here who loves my Jesus? Anybody here who loves my Lord? Oh, I want to know. I want to know if if you love my Lord. And often we'd have people planted out in the, the audience. They would stand up and respond as we sang. How do you know if you love Jesus? Is it the platitudes that we speak? Is it the warm, fuzzy feelings that we get? Is it the religious service we perform? Is it the sentimental attachment that we have to things like our Bibles? Or the chair we always sit in on Sunday? Or the people of God that we fellowship with in our flock? Is that how we know we love Jesus? Jesus says, rather, that obedience is the primary proof of our love for him. There's a dynamic in that. You say, well, what is obedience? Well, you remember Brother Brewer, don't you? Vernon, who preached here two or three years ago. By the way, his coming to mind reminds me to ask you to pray for him. Uh, there is a possibility that the cancer has reoccurred. And I know that he would appreciate your remembering him in prayer. But uh, Vernon told us that obedience is doing exactly what God says immediately with a right heart attitude. You remember that? That's what obedience is. Obedience is doing exactly what God says when he says to do it with a kind of an attitude that pleases the Lord. Our tendency as human beings is to to substitute other things for obedience, isn't it? Other things like uh, good intentions. I can remember my mother telling me when I was young that good intentions paved the road to some place. You probably know where that is. Good intentions are not enough. Good intention really is but delayed obedience. And delayed obedience is disobedience. It's like when you tell your teenager, take out the garbage. And there is the response from somewhere in the netherworld, I will. And you come back later and the garbage is still sitting there. And it's starting to ooze out on the floor. And there's been delayed obedience. And you say, take the garbage out. And finally, with the second command, the teenager comes and uh, takes the garbage out. Has he obeyed? Well, it's delayed obedience. And delayed obedience is disobedience. He had good intention the first time, perhaps, but something just got in the way, whether it was the rest of the basketball game or it was uh, homework. No, it wouldn't be that. Something else. There was good intention, you see, when he said, I will, but it never happened. Aren't we a lot like that with God? We sometimes get disgusted with our children because they don't do what we tell them to do when we've told them to do it. 
But which of us has not done the same thing with God? And we delay doing what God tells us to do. We substitute good intentions for obedience. And then there are times that we substitute pragmatic options for obedience. We've got a better idea. God says do this, but there's something that seems more practical than that. An example of this is found back in the book of 1 Samuel, if you want to turn there a second, chapter 15. God sends word to King Saul through his prophet Samuel that he is to punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. The Amalekites were a wicked and godless nation. And part of that wickedness was expressed in his refusal of Israel when Israel was in the wilderness, coming up out of Egypt. And so in verse 3, the commandment of God to King Saul and the armies of Israel is this, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him who is him. Well, that's the leader of Amalek. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of the New Testament. My friend, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God is a holy God who judges sin. And the time of the the, uh, Amalekites' sin had come to an end. Their cup of iniquity had been filled to the brim and overflowed. And now God was about to bring judgment upon them as a nation. And he gives this command to Saul. So Saul got his army together. And it says in verse 7, he defeated the Amalekites. And he captured Agag, verse 8, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that was utterly destroyed. And so we have an example here of something in place of obedience, pragmatic options. Saul says, hey, why should I kill this king? He can bring some honor to me. I can show him as an example of my power. And I will parade him before the people and be acclaimed. And he says, we will keep the best of these animals. It seems pretty impractical to kill all of them. That's such a waste. And so you see, he had a better idea than God. And he substituted that for obedience. Incomplete obedience, like delayed obedience, is disobedience. And Saul disobeyed God on this occasion and paid a terrible price. So you tell your teenager, take the garbage out. And again from the netherworld, I will. And eventually, before too many flies are drawn, he comes and picks up the garbage and takes it out. But you see, he's in a hurry. There's a basketball game to be played. 
Or maybe he's got to jump in the car and go down to the store and do something. And so instead of putting the garbage into the can where it belongs, he just puts it in the garage along the side of the wall. And as he leaves, he leaves the garage door open, which is an invitation to all the wild beasts of the neighborhood to come into the garage and to enjoy a meal. And so he comes back and he sees the mess that's in the garage. What happened? Well, there was a more pragmatic option than putting the, taking the time to put the garbage in the can, you see. There was something more important on the agenda at that point, and so he incompletely obeyed, and as a result of that, paid a price. Is there one of us that has not experienced the same thing to some extent in our lives? When we have said, God, that's a pretty good idea. I'll just improve upon it a little bit. Lord, I know you're saying that, but that's not practical for me and for my family. And so we incompletely obey. Now Saul, in his case, lost his kingship over that. God does not look upon partial obedience with partial delight. He looks upon it displeasingly entirely. And then there are times that we replace obedience with rationalized excuses. That's partly what Saul was doing here. But he seemed to develop a rationale as the chapter goes on that gets into the excuse category. Samuel comes and uh, he uncovers what Saul has done in a rather humorous way. We don't have time to talk about But in verse 20, and as he is confronted by uh, Samuel, Saul says to him, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, <coughs> notice, the people, they, took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And so you now you see, not only has he looked for a more pragmatic option to obedience, but Saul has entered into the rationale of excuses. He says, look, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I did obey the voice. I went on that mission. I, I did bring back the king alive, yes. But you see, it was the people who brought back all these sheep that you hear bleating out here. But, but wait a minute now, Samuel. They brought those sheep back so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. Now, isn't that a perfectly wonderful reason? Surely God would be pleased that they thought enough of him, eventually, to decide to sacrifice the sheep and the oxen that they had brought back from the battle. Samuel says in verse 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Excuses, however wonderful the rationale, will not stand up. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And so your teenager comes back and he finds this mess on the garage floor. And his response is, My mother always fills these bags too full. And they're top-heavy. They tip over easily. And besides that, the lid wouldn't come off the garbage can. And the neighbors, they're not supposed to let their dogs out. And which of us has not done a similar thing to our Heavenly Father when we've made a mess because of our disobedience and we begin to excuse ourselves and to, to reason out and to rationalize as to why this and why that. Obedience is the primary proof of our love for the Savior. It's when we determine to obey, to do exactly what God says immediately with a right heart attitude. It's when we determine to obey despite the consequences, despite the cost, that God can and God will bless our lives and bless our ministry. As a people, we must be obedient to God. We must do what God tells us to do. There are going to be some challenges in the next 10 years to the Word of God. There are some ideas floating around in evangelicalism that eventually will light in the branches of our tree. And we are going to be challenged to be more pragmatic. To accept some other options than what God clearly says in His Word. And at that point, it's going to be a test for us as to whether we will obey the Word of God or we're going to substitute something else for it. If we want the blessing of God, we dare not substitute. And that's true in our lives, too. We've talked about some of Jesus' commandments, but there are others. What about his commandment to be baptized? Oh, you see, that, that's a sore subject with me. Well, maybe it is. But my friend, that's one of Jesus' commandments of every one of his disciples. Now, we can immediately begin to throw up something instead of obedience. We can throw up some good intentions. Well, I plan to one of these days. Or we can say, well... You know, I have some options to that. You know, after all, I was sprinkled as a baby. But the Bible knows nothing about that in terms of baptism. There are those who have rationalized excuses. Well, you know, I can't do that, or I haven't done that because of this, this, and this. What would my family think? But Jesus says that we are to be baptized. That is one of the commandments he gave to us believers in this age to identify with him and with the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper 
We talk of them as being two ordinances, not two options. They're commandments that we're to obey. Tonight, as we observe the Lord's Supper as a church, we are commanded by our Lord to be here. You say, Andy Rooney is going to be back on 60 Minutes tonight. Yeah, I suppose he will be. We talk about ministry involvement. It is clear as it can be in the Word of God that God wants every one of us to be involved in ministry. Inside the walls, outside the walls, but somewhere there is to be an outflow from our lives to touch others for Jesus' sake. We talk about giving. Giving is not an option. Giving is a commandment of Jesus Christ. We talk about lifestyle. Purity of lifestyle in this age when standards almost do not exist in our world. But living a life that is pure in the sight of God. Now I recognize that none of us are perfect in keeping the commandments of Jesus Christ. One of his commandments is that when we have sinned, that we confess our sins. That too is an act of obedience, you see. But on the other hand, better than confession is obeying. Better to obey than to sacrifice. Obedience is the primary proof of our love for Jesus Christ. How can we experience an increasing consistency in our obedience. Let me just quickly suggest three ways. Number one, by developing intimacy with Christ. A cold heart toward the Savior is a bold heart toward sin. When my heart is warm toward Jesus, when there is an intimacy between myself and Him, then sin does not have the power over me that it has when I am walking out of fellowship with him. I can increase my consistency and obedience, secondly, by depending on the Holy Spirit for enabling strength. Oh, I thank God that we are not left up to ourselves to obey in our own strength. But we have the Holy Spirit, and in fact, you notice here in our our text, verse 16 follows verse 15. That makes sense, doesn't it? And he says, after, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. I can increase my obedience, thirdly, by denying any sanctuary for self. Sanctuary is a term that's back in vogue these days. As uh, refugees from other countries seek sanctuary in this nation uh, from political oppression, uh, possibly death where they live. So they come for sanctuary, for protection. My point is that we must not allow any sanctuary for self in our lives. For the moment we begin to build up a hedge around self to protect what we in ourselves desire, 
we have begun to move toward disobedience. By developing intimacy with Christ, by depending on the Holy Spirit, by denying sanctuary for self, you and I can experience an increasing obedience to God. Why does Jesus Christ demand our obedience? It is because he loves us. That's why. It is because everything that he tells us to do is for our own blessing. Our own good, our own freedom, our growth, our own prosperity in the things of God. It is not because he's trying to be hard or harsh or abusive. It is because he desires our good and so he gives us commandments. Then he says, if you love me, keep them. Obedience is an old truth that is in need of fresh application to my life and yours as we move into this new decade. Let's pray. Friend, what is the area of obedience that Jesus is talking to you about? Has he today uncovered an area where there has been sin? Where something else has been substituted for obedience to him? Will you obey him now and confess that? Will you repent of it and in dependence, that is faith, start over again today and determine in your heart by the strength of the Holy Spirit who abides within you forever that by his strength you will obey and do exactly what God tells you to do when he tells you to do it with the right heart attitude. Will you? For someone here that may be the very first step in becoming a Christian, the obedience of faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. And I wonder, just as we close this part of our service, if there's one here who would say, that is the step I need to make today. I have been trusting other things, but I understand that I need to trust Christ alone, who died for me and rose again. And I am trusting him today as my Savior. I receive him. I obey him in believing. Would you lift your hand if that's your prayer? Your decision? Yes, sir. God bless you. That's the very first step. It's a step you never have to take again, but you must take it the first time to be saved. Is there anyone else? Today, I am believing on Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Well, I wonder if there are some of us who would say by the uplifted hand, God has uncovered an area of my life where there is concern in my heart, conviction in my heart. And today I'm beginning again. I'm confessing. And I'm determining in my heart to obey God. Would you lift your hand? Yes. God bless you. Are there others? I will obey because I love him. God bless you. 
Oh, Father, seal to our hearts this message on obedience. And despite the fact that it's old, may it be new to us, newly applied, that our walk with you may begin anew and be fresh today. In Jesus' name, amen.